You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And this is the word of the Lord. So we're, we're talking about resurrection today. If, if you are, if this is your church home, or if this is like the one time of year your family guilts you into coming to church, we, we know Easter is the day we talk about Jesus rising from the dead. That's, that's what Easter Sunday is. It's the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, right? And so we want to take a few minutes. We want to talk about that. But, but I am not, I'm not so foolish is to assume we come to this story with an actual blank slate and, and even actual, an actual open heart to hear it. And, and here's the reason. The first one is for those of us who are, who are more churched, we have heard this story a million times. This is the story we talk about, right? Empty tomb, he is risen, he is risen indeed. This is the thing. And to those of us who are maybe less churched, who, who are hearing this, and it's, the story itself is a little more fresh, the story is rather unbelievable, right? And there's, there's a part of our person that goes, so wait a minute, the foundation of this whole thing, this whole Christian thing, is a guy resurrecting from the dead a couple thousand years ago. That seems unlikely to me, <laughs> right? We, we come to this story with different kinds of baggage, and so I want to encourage us as best as we are able in, in, in our biased and sinful hearts, to actually experience this afresh today. To actually hear this story afresh as though a group of distraught mourning women ran in the room and told you this had just happened, right? So let me pray for that. And then we're going to point out a couple of things. Jesus, you are so good. Jesus, this morning... As we reflect on this story, we ask, we ask that you would make yourself known. Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us new, speak to us fresh. We ask that our ears, our hearts, our minds would be opened to the reality of this. We ask that you would remove the baggage of our culture, our history, our thoughts, our family, our hurts, our failures, and that we would sit this morning and hear anew of what you have done. Jesus, you're real. We trust you for this. So we pray it in your name. Amen. I have one of these daylight alarm clocks. Have you guys heard about these? Has anyone heard about these? They're amazing. I don't know. If you, if you know me well, you know that I'm not necessarily a morning person. In fact, our setup team this morning can attest to that. 
I, I got into this rhythm a couple years ago that was really bad, where I was setting like six alarms in the morning. I had like my alarm clock, and then I had my cell phone, and then I had my watch, like multiple layers of alarms to like drag myself out of bed. And my brother uh, started talking to me about these, these daylight alarm clocks. And I have to tell you, they're amazing. You should go buy one. Like, I'm not even joking. All it does, it doesn't make a sound, it just lights up really slowly. It digitally simulates a sunrise in your room. And by the time it's all the way on, you have like this blinding solar flare in your retinas, and you just wake up ready to attack the day, and it's great. Now, I do feel morally obligated to also confess to you guys that my bedroom actually faces east, and we have a large window that I definitely could just open the blinds, but no! I simulate my sunrises digitally, thank you, and they're wonderful. And this, this, little, this little doohickey is great, but what's so interesting about it is it takes like 40 minutes to wind up. Like, the light turns on like 35, 40 minutes before you have your alarm set, and it slowly fades up, because obviously that's how sunrises work. Well, it's interesting, I, I, often, I often get up really early And because of school and because of study for sermons and things like that, I'll sit in my living room and I'll read while the sun rises. So I simulate a sunrise in my room, and then I go out in my living room and I experience a real sunrise once I'm awake. Just double dipping. Two sunrises a day for me. I'm a two-sunrise guy. Anyway, uh, I'll I'll often go out and sit in my living room, turn turn on my reading lamp, and I'll sit and I'll read scripture, pray, or study for school, whatever it is I'm doing. And it's so interesting I don't know if any of you are enough of morning people that you actually experience the sunrise on a regular basis. But what's beautiful about a sunrise is it's incredibly subtle. It's incredibly slow and subtle. You have this moment where you kind of go, oh, it's kind of glowing. It's kind of glowing out there a little bit, but you, you need your reading lamp to read, and so you turn your lamp on. And the next thing you notice, you realize, my room is fully illuminated and my reading lamp is useless. And it just has gradually happened, right? It's not, and like, unless it's like a clear sunny day and like a sunbeam like comes through, like, pew, like, you don't really notice it. It just gets brighter and brighter. And the next thing you know, the room is bright, the day has come, and you can turn your lamp off, right? That's, I mean, that's why we use the term dawning, right? It's slow, it's subtle, it arrives, and you almost don't even notice it until it's already there. This is the essence of our text today. I don't know if you got to join us, how many of you got to join us Friday night for our reflection on the crucifixion for, for Good Friday, but it was, it was a little bit of a downer. But, it, but we talked about this idea of the, the injustice of Christ's death, how wrong it was for that to even exist, right? And John uses this language all throughout his gospel of light and dark. He refers to Jesus as the light of the world. And when Jesus dies, John uses the imagery of nighttime. And he calls it night. And, and this is kind of like the light has been snuffed out, right? And, and those days when Jesus is in the tomb and, and, and everyone just feels defeated and it seems like the whole thing is over, like this is darkness. But we know the end of the story. We know that on Sunday, Jesus resurrects. He, he comes back to life. But what I think is so beautiful about the resurrection of Jesus is that he doesn't show up like a light switch turning on. He shows up like a dawn. He, 
he wakes up. I mean, th- th- think about it this way. At some point on Sunday morning, Jesus woke up, right? He opened his eyes. He started breathing. His heart started beating. His blood started flowing. He sat up, walked out of the tomb, probably much to the surprise of the men guarding it. And according to John, he starts gardening. Right? What an interesting... I mean, this is... This is the most significant event in all of human history. This is the, the moment in time that creation hinges upon, and no one really notices it. It's this quiet, slow, subtle thing where Jesus wakes up, sits up, he walks out of the tomb, and just kind of, I'm going I'm to hang out with my friends today. And then he does. It's, have, you, have you reflected on that before, right? There's no shouting. There's no trumpets. There's no neon lights all around the planet. There's no voice from heaven telling everyone everything's different. There's just a Middle Eastern Jewish guy sitting up, breathing, walking out of a tomb, and then going about his day without any pomp, right? That's... So strange to me. But I think there's something in that for us today that I think is going to be beneficial. So I want to look at a couple different aspects of this story that we might gloss over. And that's going to, I think that's going to lead us to, to, to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And I think that'll be kind of where we end out our time today. But, but I want you to reflect on this idea that the resurrection was incredibly strange for a lot of reasons. I mean, resurrection is not exactly a common human occurrence, right? But it was incredibly strange in that it didn't look like what you would expect that sort of thing to look like. What would you expect the God of the universe to do when he's just saved humanity and broken the curse? I don't know. Tell people, right? Sing a song, voice from heaven, noise, glowing angels, but no, a small group of people find out. And you know what the crazy thing is? This small group of people doesn't believe that it actually happened. How crazy is that? I mean, listen, we, we bring a modern Western bias to our reading of the text. I don't know how aware you are of that, but we are skeptical by nature. We're a little more empirical by nature, and we bring those things to our reading. And so if we were to hear about a guy raising from the dead, of course we would engage that with skepticism. We go, really? How about you? Were you sure about that? Like the whole, it seemed to them an idle tale. That makes sense to us, right? But think about Jesus's actual audience here. These aren't modern Western critical thinkers. These are his closest friends and followers. These are the people who've given up their lives and sacrificed and paid the price to follow around Jesus, the miracle worker, right? They've seen Jesus give freedom to demoniacs and and cleanse lepers and, mind, mind you, raise the dead and heal diseases and feed the hungry masses. They've seen him gain garner authority and control over nature and storms and weather. And when Jesus says, hey, I rose from the dead like I said I was going to, they struggle with that. They don't believe it. They doubt it. Why do you think that is? Right? Why, 
Why would of these, of all people, see this, experience this, and go, wait, what? I mean, think about the image, right? The, the women, they hear this, the angels explain, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. He said he was going to raise from the dead. He, he, he's been telling you this, and so he did. And they kind of go, they kind of, huh. And it doesn't say they believed. It says they remembered. They remembered Jesus told them that. And so you can see the women kind of going, yeah, he did say he'd do this, didn't he? Huh. And so they go and tell the apostles. And the apostles hear it and go, no, I don't think so. That, I don't, I don't, I think you're emotional. I think you're mourning. That doesn't seem real. And Peter goes and he looks. And what's his response? He doesn't believe. He marvels. Now, that's a weird word that we don't use often. If if you go back to the language there, essentially, he's just kind of confused and impressed. Just like, huh. I I mean, yeah, tomb's empty, like they said. Weird. And that's kind of how it tells the story. In fact, when Jesus shows up and hangs out with them, you can fast forward uh, to like two more paragraphs or into the next story when Jesus appears to his disciples. They still don't believe him. He's standing like, hey guys, what's up? You want to eat breakfast? I could totally go for some fish. And it says, and some still didn't believe. Really? What, what, is, what is it about the central miracle of Christianity that makes it so unextraordinary and unbelievable to the people most likely to embrace and engage it? Right? Well, the answer is a little complicated but we all know it already. And, and here's what it is. You see, this is not an isolated event. It's not as if one day Jesus was like, you know what could fix everything if I just died and rose again? This is the culmination of the plan that God has been working out since the creation of his creation. This is the culmination of what God has been doing and proclaiming and preparing for from day one. You see, God is sovereign over his creation, and he has been preparing to redeem it and rebuild it and unite it to him since before it was even created. He knew this would go down. Jesus' death and resurrection is not some weird accident. It's not some weird cultural appropriation of later people. This has been God's plan, and it's been what he's been declaring since the beginning of this book and up to this point and afterwards. We said it kind of at the beginning, right? Jesus made the universe. Paul tells us that in in Colossians, that that when God created, like Jesus was the mechanism of creation, that that God, this loving creator, made everything and made it for relationship with him, but it was broken. Our our sin, our rebellion, our, our thoughts that we could be independent, right? God gave humanity the opportunity to steward the whole of creation, to lead it into connection with him. From microbes in your intestines to colliding neutron stars millions of light years away, God created the entire machine that is the universe and made these little creatures in his image that they might steward that creation and lead it into intimacy with its creator. That gift was given to us. But humanity chose independence. 
We chose disconnection. We were created for connection, but we chose disconnection. We chose to be on our own, to make our own choice, and that broke the world. The world has been operating outside of its design ever since humanity disengaged from its creator. We read, right, in in Scripture in Romans 8 where it talks about the creation groaning and longing for this broken mess to be fixed. The story of the Older Testament, beloved, is simply this. God promising that he will fix it over and over and over and over and over. Every time God connects with his people through a covenant, he promises, I will not let this curse be the final word. I will fix what is broken. You can trust me. I keep my promises. I will not let this curse control the world. I will fix what is broken. You can trust me. I keep my promises. I will not let this curse. This is the language of God throughout the Old Testament. I will not let this curse have the final word on my creation. I will restore, I will rebuild, I will make you my own. You can trust me. I keep my promises. This is the word of God throughout the scripture. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he declares, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, he is saying nothing new. He is continuing the message that God has been preaching to his people since Genesis 3. I will not let the curse have the final say on my creation. I will fix this. I promise. You can believe me. I keep my promises. So when Jesus begins to minister and begins to declare this, people engage it. Because the creation is longing for this. Longing for this restoration. Longing for this. So when, when Jesus resurrects, when he dies and he resurrects, This is not some hiccup in the story. This is not some audible that God called to fix what was broken on the fly. This is the plan from day one. But people don't believe it. They don't engage it. They don't expect it. They they don't readily embrace it. Because it doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem like the way for God to fix what's broken. This seems like the curse winning. Right? Think about it. Every single one of us, on some level, deep in our bones, we know that there is something wrong with the world we live in. People are treated poorly. People are depressed. People are murdered. People are hungry. There's poverty and injustice and disparity of wealth and resources. There are natural disasters. There are unjust judges. There are abusers. There are terrible things in the world we live in. That doesn't seem right. We know that. We wish the world weren't like that, but it is. Death, suffering, wrong, darkness, that is the norm of creation. And the world we live in beats that into your skull from the minute you're born. Now, I don't mean to get like super emo about this, right? Like there's all sorts of joyful, beautiful things in the world we live in. But if we're honest, the things that actually bring joy and life do so because of their transcendence. 
because they connect to something larger than the curse, right? We can take joy and celebrate in a beautiful song or an excellent meal or a new wedding or the birth of a baby or a beautiful painting, right? Because these things point to something larger. They point to some, an existence where the curse doesn't reign. But the problem is these, these pleasures are fleeting, doesn't matter how good the meal is, you'll be hungry again later. doesn't matter how beautiful the painting is, it will eventually rot and crackle apart. It doesn't matter how good the song is, it'll be cheesy in five years. It doesn't matter how beautiful the baby is, because eventually they'll grow up and get old and wrinkly and die. It doesn't matter how beautiful the wedding ceremony is, because every wedding either ends in divorce or death. We know that something is broken in this world. And even the things that seem to bring joy eventually, inevitably remind us of the never-ending, unescapable effects of the curse of death. So when Jesus dies, that makes sense. He, he preached this new message. God is doing something new. You can be a part of it. You can repent. You can believe. You can be in this new kingdom. I'm fixing what was broken. And that draws souls to life. And they go, yes, I want to be a part of that. But every single thing in our experience has taught us that things that beautiful come to an end. And Jesus dies. And that's hard painful, it's unjust, and it's everything the curse has taught these people from the minute they were born. These women don't come to Jesus' tomb expecting it to be empty. They come to Jesus' tomb as people who have given up and resigned themselves to the reality of death, death and loss. They come to the tomb to mourn their dead Lord, who they thought would change things but who seemingly didn't. This is why they're there. And when Jesus resurrects, the reason they pause at that, the reason that's so hard to believe, even though Jesus literally told them that's what he was doing, is because nothing else in creation does that. Nothing else is like that. Every beautiful transcendent experience at some point, works its way back to the curse. You guys know Lazarus died again, right? Even a resurrection inevitably falls back at the feet of a cursed and broken world. So when Jesus quietly and humbly sat up and breathed and opened his eyes and walked out of the tomb back into the world alive, that was something new. Because, beloved, our Jesus has not died again. He defeated death once and for all. And that, that's unbelievable. That's that's outside the realm of human experience. That's a message that doesn't seem real. It took the the intervention of the Holy Spirit to even allow Jesus' followers to engage that. 
They didn't even remember his words until the angels reminded them. And then later on, Jesus teaches them from the scripture. He, he teaches from beginning to end, showing how this is what God has been doing and proclaiming and promising from all along. When he, when he walks with the two believers on the road to Emmaus, he takes the scriptures and illuminates them to his followers saying, no, 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 I know, I know your life has taught you this is the way things work, but God has been promising this from the beginning of creation and now it's here. This is our God who stands in the face of every experience you've had and says death does not win. If you think it does, you're wrong. If you feel like it does, you're wrong. I promise you And by the way, you can trust me, I keep my promises. This is our Jesus. Standing in the face of an entire creation and saying, wrong, that's not how it works. Death does not win, I win. Death submits to me. Submits to me. Beloved, when when Jesus stood up and walked out of his tomb, very few people noticed but I guarantee you Satan noticed. I guarantee you the creation noticed. I guarantee you death noticed. Because Jesus had broken these things. He had taken the very concept of the curse, death and decay and separation and rot, and he broke it and stood on top of it. We said it at the beginning, but I feel like it needs to be said again. Satan struck quick and fast and powerful, and his venom seemed strong, and his sting seemed real. Jesus died. The creator of the universe suffered the brunt of the curse of separation. He was actually dead. Can you imagine the strength that Satan felt in that moment? I've done it. I submitted the creator. I subjected him to his own curse. But when Jesus walked out of that tomb, quietly, humbly, with no shouts, with no pomp, with no trumpets, he crushed that serpent. That bite may have struck true, but it was not strong enough. Beloved, it does not matter how loudly and how powerfully a cursed and broken world rages against you. I promise you Jesus is stronger. Death cannot hold him. It cannot have him. And when he stands up and says, death, you're defeated, submit to me, bow, and it does. He then looks out at his children and says, you're with me. The apostle says says this to us. You who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What he's describing here is people stuck in the curse. People destroyed and owned by death and by the authority of God's enemy. This is verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich and mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming of ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. One more time, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of works. No one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beloved, I know. I know it's true with you because it's true with all of us. The curse seems real. And it seems final. It seems like the greatest authority there is. Everyone we've ever known and loved has died or will die. It just seems like decay owns this world. And, and in that, even the most beautiful message can seem hopeless. But beloved, there is a light after the darkness. There is a light dawning even now, even today, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and defeated the power of Satan and death and hell and curse, and you can be free in him. God desires this for you. He desires life for you. He desires that you, that you fall at his feet, that you submit, that you repent, that you believe, and in that you find freedom from the curse freedom from this weighty thing that drags after every other human being whispering in your ear, it doesn't matter how good it is, you're still cursed. Jesus whispers back, no, you're not. I've broken the curse. This world is mine. I will recreate it and I will make it perfect and I want you to be in that. So as we end out our time today, the, the simple question is this. What is it that makes you doubt the resurrection? Because everyone does. Everyone doubted the resurrection. Jesus' closest friends and followers doubted the resurrection because they lived in the cursed world just like we do. It doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem like God can actually do that. It doesn't seem like he does do that. It doesn't seem like there's actual alleviation from suffering. But beloved, Jesus promises us. He promises us. 
He will fix what is broken. He will free the captives. He will resurrect the dead. This is, this is the gift of God given to us by grace. So here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to invite the band to come back up. I'm going to pray. And, and what I would like for you guys to do is take a couple minutes. I'm going to give you a couple prompts. I would love for you guys to just sit and actually reflect on this truth and pray through this truth. Pray through some of these questions. What is it today? What, what aspect of the curse seems so weighty and so real that, that is so close to you that it's taking up your whole field of vision and you cannot trust and believe in the power of the resurrection? Because the power of the resurrection is real. Paul tells us that the Spirit of God that rose, that rose Christ Jesus from the dead dwells within you. The same power that, that opened those eyes, that, that made those lungs breathe, that made that heart beat, dwells within the children of God. What is it that keeps you from experiencing that? What is the block of belief between you and the resurrection? Is there some suffering, some injustice, some wrong, some hope of this world, some fleeting thing? It just puts a block between your heart and the reality of that. Man, if it is, I would, I would encourage you to confess that to our sweet Jesus. He longs to hear from you. He longs to hear your confession. To, to, he longs for you to question him. When Jesus walked out of the grave, he didn't, he didn't come down on his followers and his friends saying, what the heck? Didn't, I told you this would happen. No. No. He welcomed their questions. He welcomed their confessions. He invited them to experience the power of life and freedom. Beloved, Jesus is inviting you to the same thing today. Experience that. Find life in that. Find joy in Christ. Find freedom in him today. Jesus, you're so good to us. You're so good to us. I confess to you, Jesus, that I live my life so zoomed in on this world, so zoomed in on, on the day-to-day -day tasks of job and family and finances. I just, I just ignore the truth and the power of your resurrection. I, I don't think that you actually speak in to the little mundane things of my life, and so I separate them out. Jesus, please take that from me. Jesus, I want to see the power of your life, the power of your freedom, the power of your gospel in the whole of my life. Beloved, take a few minutes and be honest with God. Confess to him. Talk to him about, about what, what it is that sets up blocks between you and belief in his resurrection. Confess those things to him. Ask him for freedom and clarity and belief. See what he says to you. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us for we are sinners. We believe this curse. 
We experience it all day. Jesus, please grant us freedom. God, if there are hearts in this room that are far from you, I pray that you would draw them near. If there are hearts in this room that struggle with doubt, with belief, with confession, I pray that you would give them the gift of your faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.